Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'll be talking to Max Fawcett, who is the uh, lead columnist at the National Observer, and incidentally, my first uh, magazine editor at when he was at Alberta Oil way back in 2015. Max and I have, uh, I've interviewed him a number of times on energy issues, political issues, and, uh, and we've collaborated on a few issues. So I guess full disclosure, we have a pre-existing relationship, just so everybody knows. So welcome to the interview, Max. Well, thank you for having me and, and glad to be fully disclosed. <laughs> you can never be f- too fully disclosed, I think. Wow, wow. there's an image. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, well, look, I, I, I wanted to uh, congratulate you on uh, fatherhood. Uh, your you. little son, Everett, was, was born last year. How are you yeah. making out with, uh, with being a dad? It's, uh, I mean, as you know, it's been, it's been a whirlwind. Uh, you know, I thought I was prepared for it. You know, you take the classes, you read the books, talk to people, you think you have a handle on it, and then you get 900 curveballs thrown at you at the exact same moment. So uh, it's been, you know, and then you throw in a pandemic on top of everything else. I mean, as if it wasn't confusing enough, but it, you know, it's funny. I, when I talked to people before, you know, we had Everett, I, you know, they, they, they would say to me, like, because I would ask them, you know, explain to me the, the cost benefit analysis. Like, it, does it make sense to have kids? And they would say, no, no, dummy, it's not, it's not a rational thing. Like, it's, it's, it, you can't cost benefit it out. And I sort of gathered on that as like, aha, then I shouldn't have kids. These people are all deluded. And, you know, now I'm, I'm here in, in the other side of the, of the boat. And, and I totally understand what they mean. It's not a rational thing. Uh, it's just this, weird feeling that uh that kind of grips you and and doesn't let you go and you know the analogy that that my partner and i use is it's it's kind of like going from living in color or living in black and white sorry to living in color right like it's just it's just a fundamentally different universe and and it's just the way you see things the way you experience things everything has changed so uh you know sleepless nights frustration all the all of that but uh i couldn't be happier well, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, I would say the living in color, it's like 5K retina screen on a Mac. Exactly. Which is, which yeah. is really something if you haven't got one. Uh, <laughs> well, look, uh, let's talk about the uh, Canadian energy politics, but particularly uh, now CPC leader, conservative leader, uh, Pierre Polyev, because energy is a big part of his political messaging, his political populism, I would argue. And it seemed, you know, as much attention as he gets for that, uh, there really isn't anything innovative. He's not saying anything that the CPC hasn't said in the past, that his predecessors, Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole, haven't said. He just seems to have a way of saying it differently that maybe is catching people's imagination. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I'm not even sure that he is capturing anyone's imagination on this issue outside of Alberta. Uh, you know, I sort of, 
I think this is this has certainly been the story of the last two leaders that that their their ability to win an election nationally has been compromised by the base of support that they have in in the prairies and, and you know it's sort of a a case of the tail wagging the the CPC dog and and it kind of gets it so far off course that it can't win those seats in the 905 region in Ontario or in you know Montreal or wherever it might be and I think Polyev is in the same box uh maybe more so because you know he grew up in calgary i think he probably feels even more kind of loyal and beholden to to representing those those interests you know people in people in ontario people in in other parts of the country i just don't think they care about this kind of petronationalism that we constantly see getting recycled by you know like you said like cap and and the the quote-unquote big brains in the energy sector here so you know yeah they can rile albertans up uh, and maybe Polyev is better at riling, he is better at riling people up than anyone I've ever seen. But where does that get them? Does that get them more seats in Alberta? No, because, you know, there, there's really only two that are available for them to win. Maybe they win the, you know, Calgary Skyview seat that the Liberals won. I don't think that the Edmonton Centre seat is available, but whatever, that's two seats. That does not help them form a national government. And And I really kind of think that it will distract and sort of, pull Polyev away from issues that maybe are a little more profitable in the places that he needs to win a lot of seats, which is, you know, housing, cost of living, things like that. So, you know, it's not, it's not surprising to see the sort of same arguments being, being deployed because it's really all they have. Um, and the fact that they've failed and probably cost the last two elections, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that occurs to them, but, but, it, you know, it, there it is. And it may, it may end up costing them the next one as well. Who knows? Now, I've had the opportunity to interview David Coletto, who's the CEO of Abacus Data. And he's done a fair amount of polling on who uh, Poliev's supporters are and what they believe. And he identifies two groups that are of interest, I think, to this discussion. One is uh, anxious progressives, which uh, make up about 21% of his, uh, his polling group and anxious conservatives who make up 27%. And so for the anxious progressives are, you know, they're, they're the folks who are worried about housing affordability. They're worried about the, you know, uh, the, their future job prospects and the high cost of living and, and all of, all of that kind of stuff. I and mean, these people will be under 40, let's say. And, I can see where a lot of his messaging appeals to those those people. I can understand where where why he's getting progressive support, you know, in a way that O'Toole and and Shear didn't do. Is there any chance? Do you think that his I would call it regressive messaging and his narrative around energy might alienate some of those potential progressive voters? Yeah, I think it depends on how loud he is about it and and how sort of how how much a, a part of his message he decides to make it. I, you know, I think he's been so far pretty conspicuous, pretty careful rather about keeping it relatively quiet. You know, you look at the videos he's posted on on his YouTube and, and his Twitter account. It's not much about energy. There's not much about pipelines. Uh, you know, there's there's definitely been some stuff about LNG and we can get to that in a second because it's ridiculous. But most of it has been pretty focused on on the things that would appeal to those to that demographic that you mentioned. You know, one of one of Polyev's strengths, I think, is is his message discipline. He is able to stay on a message and and sort of continue to hammer it from a bunch of different angles. Um, 
and so far he's been pretty good about not letting kind of the grievance culture of the Alberta energy sector infect uh, his broader sort of messaging. But, you know, it's, we got a lot of time from now until the next election. And, you know, I think now that he's the leader, perhaps some of these folks here in Alberta will, will want a bigger part of his platform and maybe will be frustrated if they don't get it. Well, on that note, let's talk about an open letter to Justin Trudeau that was released, I believe it was earlier this week, maybe it was late last week. It's uh, it's an open letter to Justin Trudeau from 101 Canadian energy executives. And what it says, a Canadian energy sector, sector ready to support global markets, and it basically pummels the prime minister about the ears for doing all sorts of, you know, all manner of sins like suppressing the Canadian oil and gas industry. It is very Polyev language in it, in a way. And it's this, you know, energy populism that has percolated in Alberta for a long time and seems to pop up its head, you know, every every time there's an election, provincial or federal. And uh, I, I, I know you've, you've read the letter. What do you make of this thing? I mean, it's always nice when people put their name and sign off on something this stupid, right? Because then at least you, you know, you have a list of, of all the people who thought not only was this a good idea, but not only did they like not read, it's not just like they retweeted it or something, they actually signed their names to it. So, and I do recognize a couple of my more persistent Twitter trolls in there, uh, not to mention, you know, Brett Wilson and, and a bunch of other folks who are sort of not surprising signatories to this. I, I mean, it's, it's so interesting because it's so obviously nonsense. I, I really wish I could get a few of these folks in the room and just ask them, like, what exactly do you think you can do here? You know, do you, do you think that you can sort of divine LNG terminals in, in a matter of weeks and have those cargoes shipped off to Europe in time for Christmas? Like, it, it, you know, for, for a group of mostly engineers, uh, it's just sort of like a remarkably vague and unengineer like sort of letter. Uh, you know, and there was, you know, it was interesting. Adam Legg, who is the uh, president and CEO, whatever the title is, of um, the Business Council of Alberta, which is sort of the, you know, uh, alt Calgary Chamber of Commerce for, uh, you know, the Mannix family and the Southerns and, and the oil and gas folks. He had an op-ed in the Calgary Herald uh, earlier this week sort of saying how and it was much more articulate and well-written because, you know, he has like calm staffers and, and understands the value of a metaphor about how like Canada had been there, you know, for its allies in the past. We've you know done peacekeeping and all the rest of it. But now in their time of need, our allies have come to us searching for energy and we have given them the cold shoulder. And it's the same argument, right, that that the energy sector would love to help Russia or Russia would love to help Germany and Europe, you know, wean themselves off of Russian oil and gas, if only Trudeau would let them. But, but what is he doing to actually stand in their way? And the answer to that is sweet fuck all. He's not doing anything to stand in their way. Um, you know, Kitimat LNG has had its, its approval from the federal government for three years now, I think, maybe more than three years, and it hasn't moved a muscle because it understands exactly the same thing that the prime minister articulated, which got people very upset, which is there's no good business case here. Right. There's no good business case for a greenfield LNG terminal in Canada in the year 2022. And you would not be able to get anyone with any sort of financial acumen to commit a dollar to that purpose. But, you know, uh, there's a lot of folks 
who see the prices for gas in Europe, who see the prices for oil in Europe, and they have, you know, they have FOMO. They, 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 they're sad that they're missing out on the opportunity to make big profits, but that's not the prime minister's fault. Well, yes, and let me uh, quote a source uh, that makes that point, and no, none other than the International Energy Agency, uh, which recently released its uh, third quarter uh, 2022 gas report, gas market report, and it said in there that, yes, high prices were, you know, there was a lot of interest now amongst maybe, you know, uh, doing more LNG and investing in, in uh, liquefaction and so on, but there were a couple of factors that uh, mitigated against it and, and induced caution in the executives. And one of them um, was the uh, medium-term outlook is not that great. Uh, the IEA thinks that in 2023, uh, demand is going to soften because of, because of the uh, inflation-busting uh, efforts of central banks. And demands actually, prices are going to drop and demand's going to drop. The other thing is, uh, if you're looking for one of these companies to make a, uh, an, uh, an FID, an investment decision on one of these plants, they're under tremendous pressure from investors to return uh, money in the form of uh, div higher dividends and share buybacks. And all of that conspires to make the industry very, very conservative. And it said, it, you know, it expects between now and 2025, I think it was, that the the output is only going to increase 2% a year, LNG output, uh, globally, and it will come from projects that are already in the pipeline. Exactly. So, so there, there's literally, there's not a business case. No, I, you know, I kind of wish the prime minister had been a little more tactical here. Um, you know, when you say the right thing in the wrong way, it can often be turned against you. And I think that's what he did here. You know, he, he should have said, you know, that, that it's up to the private sector uh, and they make their decisions based on on you know what is good for them in terms of generating a return. And he encourages them to do everything they can, move heaven and earth to help our allies in Europe and put put the onus on them because he should have known, I think he knows, that they can't do anything. Um, that, that that there's no universe in which a private sector entity would invest billions of dollars betting on, like you say, a, a long-term outlook for natural gas that is more unstable and uncertain than it was six months ago, 12 months ago, uh, before Russia invaded. I mean, that's that's the part that I think some, I mean, I think that, you know, the, some of the folks who signed that letter understand, but I think some of them don't, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine has made it more likely that that gas demand is gonna undershoot targets forecasts than it, than it you know, than it would have otherwise. It, there's near-term, huge pressure on prices right now, obviously, because, uh, you know, basically Russian supplies have been cut. But if you think that if you think that Europe and Germany in particular are just going to trade one form of fossil fuel dependence for another, you're out of your mind. This this has clarified things, I think, for the German people, for German politicians, for industry, for everyone there that they need to, as much as possible, generate their own energy uh, and accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels. So you know, this is not this is not a bullish uh, development for the oil and gas industry. This is actually, I think, a long term bearish development. And that's one that doesn't seem to have kind of settled on a lot of these folks yet. Uh, but, you know, it, it's an opportunity to try to kick Justin Trudeau again. And Lord knows they've never passed up an opportunity to do that yet. Well, speaking of stupid, 
in the in the letter, they point to German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, uh, his recent visit uh, to Canada, and say that it highlighted Europe's desire for increased Canadian energy ex exports. And that's exactly right, but not natural gas. I mean, Schultz was very clear to the prime minister, our prime minister, that they don't want Canadian and natural gas. Germany wants hydrogen, and it, do and it doesn't want blue hydrogen. It wants green hydrogen. And it, the, the fact that they would reference Schultz, who came with that message, is I don't know what they were thinking. Well, but but you got to understand for for the, the the audience that they're trying to reach, they don't they don't actually connect the dots. They go, oh, okay, the Germans wanted our gas, and we, and Trudeau wouldn't give it to them because I don't know C sixty nine, you know whatever nonsense argument you want to make. Uh, that darn Trudeau, he he really does hate the oil and gas industry, and then they get mad at him, and you know rinse repeat. It's the same cycle all over again. It doesn't seem to have dawned on these folks that you know. Canadian oil and gas production is at record highs, profits, record highs, revenue, record highs. If he's trying to kill this industry, if he's trying to choke it the way they, they have been saying for the last six or seven years, he's very bad at that. He, he, is, he is the worst choker in the history of chokers, you know, uh, in, that, in that sense of the word. But this is all, you know, I, you know Michael Binion, who, who is the, the head of the Modern Miracle Network, uh, which is behind this, obviously he has a different agenda because he has gas assets in Quebec that Quebec won't let him develop. And, and, you know, that's a whole other can of worms, but, you know, I just don't understand what their end game is here. I, I guess it's to elect Polyev. I'm sure it is. Uh, but, you know, let's say that they do elect him in, in 2025. Do they actually think that he's going to be able to do anything to build LNG terminals on the East coast of Canada? Like, didn't they not learn their lesson with Stephen Harper when, when a conservative from Alberta gets into the you know gets into office and is is prime minister, he immediately begins assiduously courting Quebec. He does he does not bend over backwards to Alberta. He knows that he has those Alberta votes in his back pocket, no matter what, and he spends all of his time trying to win votes in Quebec. And guess what? You cannot win votes in Quebec by talking up LNG, by talking up oil and gas, by talking up new pipelines. So they're going to be disappointed, just as much as they're disappointed in that stuff under O'Toole. You know when he said he wouldn't do energy east. Uh, under Harper to some extent, it's it's like they don't learn. It's Lucy and the football all over again with Charlie Brown. Well, let's talk about the quality of the Canadian oil and gas leadership, because this is not a new problem. Uh, as long as I've been paying attention to this industry, they put a tremendous amount of effort into narrative management. Now, they might do a poor job of it, granted, but they suck up a lot of ex uh, of the oxygen in the Canadian political uh, discourse around energy in the in the process. And they do it, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, lather, rinse, repeat. They do this over and over and over again, with no discernible benefit to it. And I, I would argue that, in fact, this is a, a, a characteristic of a leadership group within the industry that has lost its way, lost its way a long time ago, and is doesn't understand the energy transition, doesn't understand the existential threat to its own industry, and is doing a disservice both to its industry and to the rest of Canada. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think doing a disservice to their shareholders and their employees, uh, which at the end of the day, you know, just to, to you know, put my 
sort of pure capitalist hat on, that's that's their first priority. That should be their first loyalty is to advancing the interests of their company uh, and everyone who benefits from it. And they don't do that. They put their their sort of partisan identities well ahead of what's best for uh, their companies and their shareholders and their employees. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of this. You know, we we see all this talk about how they, you know, they want to build carbon capture projects. You know, the, the big oil sands companies are part of the Pathways Alliance. They want to get to net zero. They want to spend all this money uh, on these projects, but gosh darn it, they just can't seem to get the, you know, the, the investor certainty in place. And it's the federal government's fault, right? That's their argument. Except it's not. There was a really interesting piece in the Globe uh, a couple of days ago from Jeff Jones talking to actual uh, sort of carbon capture project developers. And they didn't come out and say it's the fault of Pierre Polyev and the federal conservatives. But you read between the lines, that's exactly what they were saying, because they were saying, look, we can't invest billions of dollars in carbon capture projects if we have if we don't know that that carbon is going to have value in 10 years you know, or five years. If if a government comes along and gets rid of the carbon tax and says, no, nope, it's free to pollute again. Well, the economics for those carbon capture projects goes out the window. So. You know, the biggest thing standing in the way of literally billions of dollars being unleashed in Alberta in, on these carbon capture projects that these oil and gas companies say they want to build or say they want to participate in is the federal conservative position on the carbon tax. And they haven't said a word about it. They have not said one single solitary word about how Polyev's rhetoric is unhelpful, about the, how the uncertainty is unhelpful, about how they need stability. All they do is they chirp at the prime minister and the liberals, because that's what they're used to doing. And it's good. That's what sort of flatters their own political beliefs. But it does a huge disservice to their companies, to their employees, to their shareholders, to everyone who they sort of should be loyal to. Uh, and, and I just it's one of those stories that it's just it's frustrating to me because it doesn't get uh, nearly enough play. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with Danielle Smith when you know I think she's going to become the next premier because she is objectively terrible for their business. Objectively, like she is the worst thing to come along. Uh, you know, she's she's whatever they think of Justin Trudeau times a hundred on steroids. And I doubt they're gonna and I doubt they're gonna say a word about it. I think they'll they'll be quiet. They'll be you know careful. They'll probably you know uh, they'll stick to their knitting or they'll withhold comment. They you know they have no problem commenting on, on the carbon tax or on Trudeau and, and haven't had a problem for years. But when it comes to someone who actually materially threatens their business, they're going to be like quiet little lambs because at the end of the day, they hate the same people. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, the, uh, Danielle Smith, uh, who is running for the UCP leadership, and if she wins on October 6th, will become the Alberta premier. Uh <laughs> Her Alberta Sovereignty Act is uh, has been absolutely shredded and ridiculed and mocked by constitutional lawyers like Professor uh, Martin Olashinsky and retired Professor uh, Nigel Banks, the law professors from the University of Calgary. So it's clearly uh, disruptive. And over and over again, Max, it doesn't matter whether, uh, you know, I'm interviewing someone about the U.S. or Canada or Europe or wherever. The message is always the same. Innovation requires policy certainty. Investment requires policy certainty. Capital and investors want policy certainty. And yet, Canadian conservatives seem determined uh, in their rhetoric, if nothing else, should they, you know, we'll see what happens when Smith gets her hands on the, the levers of power. 
but they are bringing the exact opposite of condi conditions that will stimulate capital investment. Yeah, I mean, this is one of my favorite ironies about sort of contemporary conservatism is, you know, for all the all the talk about how, you know, they believe in markets and they believe in the private sector and, and all of this, they don't. Uh, and and they contradict themselves all the time. They 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 don't believe in sort of, you know, letting the market decide. They believe in putting their their thumb on the scale. Look at look at the stuff around ESG investing right now in the states where you have, you know, uh, governors in Florida and Texas and West Virginia basically banning uh, any financial institution that that uh, practices ESG investing or, or offers ESG as a, as a strategy. Uh, you know, this is this is something that if, if progressives did this, conservatives would lose their minds over the idea of banning financial institutions from participating in markets. But for them, it's OK, because the you know, the, the financial institutions are hurting oil and gas or they're hurting coal. And that's more important. So, you know, to hell with markets and to hell with what what the private sector thinks, we're going to put our big government thumb on the scale. So they, they don't actually have any principles or or deeply held beliefs. They 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 have kind of in-group, out-group uh, priorities and definitions, and and that's kind of how they organize themselves. So, you know, the it's interesting because if if they decide to fuck around and elect Daniel Smith, and it seems very likely they will. I mean, I think that that cake is basically baked in the oven right now. It's really just, you got to put the icing on it at the end. Uh, Albertans are going to find out uh, because there is no shortage of opportunities to invest uh, carbon capture, clean clean tech capital elsewhere right now. You know, the United States just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which which really amped up the uh, the incentives for carbon capture project development. If you're if you're a steward of capital, if you're if you're you know a pension fund or a large industrial conglomerate, and you have a choice between Alberta or Colorado, Alberta or wherever, and suddenly Daniel Smith comes along with this cockamamie Alberta Sovereignty Act, where are you going to go? Of course you're going to say, you know what, Alberta, see you later. We're going to go invest this money somewhere else because we have a 10 to 15 year timeline for paying it out, and we don't really want to have to deal with you becoming an independent country or going through this bizarre sort of exercise and self-determination. We just want to make our money back. So, you know, Alberta's going to miss out on this, this generational opportunity to attract clean tech capital, one that it is perfectly positioned to, to take advantage of because of conservative politics and because of the populist conservative movement that has kind of overtaken it. And the, you know, the fact that big business has been mostly quiet about this is an abdication of their role and responsibility. They should be speaking out. They should be saying how unacceptable this is. And instead, they behaved like scared little children uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I guess their tribal loyalties trump any sort of professional responsibility they might have. Here's one of the things that uh, I find uh, ironic, and, and that is that uh, a major customer like Germany comes to Canada, says, we're not interested in natural gas. We're not interested in your LNG. We are interested in your hydrogen, however. Now, they want green hydrogen made with uh, electrolyzers and renewable electricity. Fair enough. But Alberta's strategy is founded very squarely on blue hydrogen, which is to take you take natural gas, you put it through a steam methane reformer, 
and you get it costs you about a buck fifty a kilogram. Green hydrogen is around six bucks a kilogram. So your blue hydrogen is way competitive. And the strategy that appears to be emerging is start with blue hydrogen, use that to build out your infrastructure, your pipelines, your refueling, um, uh, you know, stations, all of that stuff. And then when the technology, the green hydrogen technology is ready, then you transition from blue to green. So if I'm a, if I, in, in the natural gas business, I'm asking, we had a customer come and ask us for hydrogen. Why are we not offering to sell them blue hydrogen or their neighbor? You know, does France need blue hydrogen or, you know, who else needs blue hydrogen? Somebody, everybody needs hydrogen. Let's get cracking on that. Instead of beating up on, you know, taking out ads in, in newspapers and signing our names to a ridiculous letter. Why don't we just get on with the business of building the blue hydrogen economy? That would seem to be a sensible thing to do. Because I think in their mind and their worldview, that is a form of sort of surrendering to the people that they've really decided that that they don't like, uh, you know, environmentalists, liberals, climate change activists, you name it. And, and, you know, I think there is an element of conservatism, just as there is an element of uh, sort of, you know, far left progressive uh, politics that, that I think is is represented by the federal NDP, where they would rather lose with their their head held high as they see it than win with, you know, uh, ideological compromises. And so to, to go out there and basically build this new, you know, blue hydrogen economy or, or move away from their traditional business model is a form of capitulation. And I just think if you if you give them the option of capitulate and win or fight and lose, they'll probably choose fight and lose, uh, especially the CEOs who at the end of the day, they, they, have a, they have very little to lose. They're all very wealthy guys and it's almost all guys. Um, you know, they have their second homes in Kelowna. They have their third homes in Arizona. You know, to them, this is, this is a game on some level uh, and they'll be fine no matter what. It's the people who work for those companies, the younger employees and the people who live in Alberta and who, you know, who need this industry and this economy to transition successfully and quickly, who are going to be the big losers here. Uh, and it's up to politicians to represent those people. And certainly as far as conservative politicians go, they are failing in the most spectacular way possible in that job. Let's talk about culture for a minute and culture within the, the oil patch and within the oil patch leadership. Because I, like you, I talk to people, you know, the middle management, sometimes upper management, people who are consultants to the industry, and you kind of get the gossip and who's saying what behind closed doors. And I'm astonished at what gets said behind closed doors. I mean, CEOs of major companies are apparently earnestly believe that Justin Trudeau has, it's a mission in life for him to kill the Canadian oil and gas industry. And I don't I, I think I once asked, do, do you remember the time when um, uh, he was sat on the, I forget his name, but he, he was a, a middling, a middle, uh, medium sized oil and gas company CEO. And he said it in a, in a cap. He said that yeah. in a cap press conference where was, that, that Trudeau was going to, you remember that? It was Jeff Tonkin. Who That's was still right. The CEO of Birchcliff Energy, which is sort of a, you know, fairly substantial natural gas company. And I asked the question in a column, who would lend money to that guy? 
Like yeah. who would give, who, what financial institution, what investor would give money to a guy who's delusional like that? Well, I mean, that's not, I think the, I think the irony is that ATV would probably do it because that's, that's ATVs, <laughs> you know, that's, that's their role in our economy here. But you're right. Your point is, is well taken. You know, that, that's a fundamentally unserious way to look at the world and a, and, and a, for them to say something like that out loud, I think does kind of give the game away that, that this is, they do believe this. They believe that Justin Trudeau is part of, you know, some sort of organized effort, I'm sure along with Jerry Butts and, and maybe Ola, you know, uh, who's the World Economic Forum guy? Um, Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab to, to, you know, suffocate the oil and gas industry and put them all out of business. I, I would just ask them to look at their own financial statements. Look at the numbers. Uh, you have never had it better than you have it right now. You have never made more money than you are making right now. You have never produced more molecules than you are producing right now. So if you subscribe to this belief that Trudeau is trying to kill your industry, you have one of two choices. Uh, choice one is that he's bad at it, uh, which I think, you know, kind of is at odds with this shadowy, you know, this vision that he's like this conspiratorial mastermind. And option two is that you're wrong. And you know, I mean, option two is pretty clearly the answer. He has bent over backwards in some respects not to make the same mistakes that his father made. I know from talking to people close to him that, you know, he, he is deeply sensitive to the mistakes that his father made in terms of the National Energy Program and, and wants, I think, against probably his best interests to do right by Alberta. I think Alberta has given him no reason to do that. Uh, it has actually gone out of its way to give him a reason not to do right by them. But I, I know that he, this is important to him not to kind of make the same mistake that his dad made with where you're sacrificing the interests of, of Alberta at the altar of Quebec and Ontario. I know people in the industry don't believe this. They, it, you know, yada, yada, yada. But I, I can just tell you that that is how he thinks. Um, but what's interesting to me is that may change. Uh, his patience may be running thin. Uh, there is, I, as I understand it, uh, you know, a brewing disagreement in the federal cabinet between Environment Minister Stephen Guibault and uh, uh, you know Jonathan Wilkinson, Minister of Natural Resources, around what to do with this emissions cap stuff. And you know, if Danielle Smith gets in there and she is as aggressive and disrespectful and sort of flagrantly uh, anti-Canadian as she's been so far, she is essentially giving Trudeau free hand to crack down on on the industry in, in the way that they have pretended that he's been cracking down since 2015. Um, they may be sort of creating their own uh, their own conspiracy, their own outcome here, um, and they're not going to like it. Uh, and it would be hard for me as someone who, you know, can see the political calculus here to disagree with it from Ottawa's perspective. Oh, no, you're going to lose two seats in Alberta and you might win them back in BC and Ontario easily by sort of pursuing a more ambitious climate policy. Uh, you know, Alberta has shown time and time again that it doesn't matter what the prime minister does, whether he buys a pipeline, gives them billions to clean up their wells, uh, gives them the most per capita support for COVID-19 in the country. There is no gratitude. There is no. There is no grace. There is no decency. Um, it it just is more, you know, anger and fear mongering and division and separatist sentiment. So at some point, why bother? 
right? As hard as he's tried, as much as he's bent over backwards, and as much of a cost as it's come to him politically, at some point, even he's going to run out of patience. And I don't think that's a risk that people in Alberta entirely appreciate right now. Well, let's wrap up our conversation with a discussion of another risk. And this is the, a risk that I think is very poorly understood in Alberta. And that is the risk posed by the oil patch leadership in refusing to recognize the rapid acceleration of the energy transition and what that is going to do to their markets for primarily oil in the short to medium term and longer term that uh, markets for natural gas. And it seems to me that that refusal to recognize the global energy transition for what it is, is also bound up in their ideology. It's bound up in their, in their tribal affiliations, as you call it. I think that's a good way to put it. This is very much, it strikes me as, as, as American style culture war politics. And, and that, that is blinding them to what for the rest of us is blindingly obvious is that the, the energy transition is accelerating and it poses an existential threat to the Alberta oil and gas industry. And so what's your, what's your take on that and the quality of the leadership vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, existential threats? Yeah, it's, um, it's terrible leadership. It, it is uh, leadership that will, I think, in time reveal itself to have been uh, negligent and, uh, you know, sort of recklessly um, myopic about what is happening. You know, it's sort of, it's a bit, you know, you, you look back to sort of the 1980s and the auto sector and, and, you know, sort of the wave of Japanese and Asian imports coming in and kind of chewing through the U.S. auto sector. And there was a sort of similar blindness back then to, to what was happening. And, and it cost those companies dearly. And I think in both cases, you're going to see a similar pattern, which is that the executives who are responsible for, for not acting when they should have, for not seeing the signs, for not you know, making the right moves, being leaders. And, you know, and leadership is about taking bold and brave decisions um, and seeing things before they become obvious. They'll get off fine. They'll, they will retire with millions of dollars in their pocket. Uh, you know, certainly the, the recent surge in prices, you know, uh, their shares are doing really well. Like these are people who are not going to suffer financially. Their kids will be fine. Their grandkids will be fine. They'll ride off into the sunset. It'll be that the people in the provinces or in the province, Alberta and Saskatchewan, I guess, where, where they, their businesses are located, their younger employees, and eventually their shareholders who will, who will eat the shit sandwich here. Um, and that's part of the problem is the incentives are not aligned. The, the incentives for the leadership in the industry right now is maximize short-term profits and let someone else figure out the long-term problem right? They'll retire in 2026 or 2027, and it's someone else's problem. It's the next generation of leaders who are going to have to clean up the mess that they're making right now. But that's where politicians are supposed to come in, right? They're supposed to see the longer game a little bit and say, look, eventually this is going to be our debt, our problem, our missed opportunity, and it will be the citizens of this province or these provinces who can't leave, who can't retire from their lives, who will pay the price. And we don't have those leaders. Uh, we, you know, we have Rachel Notley. She does a fine job. Um, but, you know, conservatives are the ones who can move the needle here. They can make the difference. If they spoke out, 
and, and really spoke truth to the situation and said, look, guys, we have to transition. We have to make this work. Uh, and here's how we do it. I think it would, it would transform the conversation. But, but that's not going to happen. Waiting for that to happen is like waiting for, uh, you know, hell to freeze over. Uh, it's just, it's just never, ever going to happen. So, you know, I, I look forward in 10 or 15 years to, to, you know, you and I can sit around and say, well, we were right. Uh, but fat lot of good, it's going to do the people here, you know, uh, they're not going to be able to heat their homes or, or fill their bank accounts with our told you so's. And, you know, that's, that's frustrating for me that, you know, we have people who are kind of raising the flag right now saying that this is going to, this is going to be bad and this is what's going to happen. And, you know, it's the train's just going to keep moving by, uh, unfortunately, uh, because these, you know, big, brave capitalist leaders of these oil and gas companies don't have the courage to, to actually say what they should know is true. Well, on that depressing note, uh, we're going to have to wrap up our conversation. <laughs> uh, always enjoy our conversations, Max. Um, this theme that we've discussed today, which is conservative politics, Pierre Poliev, the deep ties of the oil, uh, oil sector, but particularly its leadership to the CPC, to the UCP, and the problems that that can, is going to pre uh, present shortly on a number of, of uh, a number of areas. I, I think we, we just are not having that conversation. There are not enough of us talking about it and it's uh, and it needs to be talked about. We, this is uh, uh, a narrative that, uh, you know, we let them get away with their narrative far too often. And I'm not entirely sure how one that gets countered, but it needs to. And maybe we've done a little bit of that today. So thank you very much for this. Well, thank you. You know, I agree. Fingers crossed we've put a dent in the wall here. And uh, I've been promising a podcast for a long time, but but it is coming in short order. Uh, we have a title. We have a producer. Things are happening. Um, so when it launches, I will I will have to have you on and we can we can make another dent together. We'll look forward to it. Sounds good.